Hello, and God bless you. This is Pastor Jeremy, and what a delight to be with you on this Tuesday, October 6th of 2020. We'd like to welcome all our listeners today. Uh, we thank you from wherever you are tuning in from. We are so glad that you can set some time to study the Word of God with us. Uh, we 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 can feel the faith and 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 again as Brother Marty said yesterday we we thank you we we hear you uh, and some of the testimonies that we have received uh, of what God is doing through you excuse me what God is doing in you uh, through some of these podcasts and and we thank the Lord for that and we are excited um, today of this week about the Word of God yesterday we began our week. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is our fifth or sixth podcast on the uh, on this series of Ezekiel. So, God, we've been gleaning a lot uh, these last few days in what God is saying in this hour. So I'm excited today about the Word of God. One of the things that I've learned, uh, and this has been since we, we, we started, is that everything that that we can know about today about this hour about what's coming can be traced even before uh this this world was was uh before before the the beginning of time something happened in eternity and that's why you see us continually going and tracing back everything yesterday even through the very throne room of God where his glory is at and these things are very important to know to understand what lies just ahead of us. Uh, <clears throat> Moses, I believe, said that we must, uh, under, he, he, that he um, reveals the end from the beginning. And so God is, is taking us through the word of God, showing us things, very heavy, very deep things, but they're necessary. And I believe today God has a fresh word for us, fresh manna, and I'm looking forward to it. Today in our panel, we have Brother Marty and Brother Fernando joining us. And as always, it is a pleasure and an honor to be able to study the Word of God together. So, Brother Marty, I'll leave it to you uh, to share as we continue on this journey, to share what God has placed in your heart as we study the Word of God together. Amen. We're going now into the ninth chapter today. Uh, we'll do a little brief review. Uh, before we get into the ninth chapter uh, of, of the last uh, several podcasts, actually, we'll just briefly cover some things that we, we need to understand, and then we'll get into the ninth chapter. So I'm going to have Brother Jeremy uh, begin reading today in Ezekiel chapter 9. And if you would, Brother Jeremy, read to us uh, verse 1 through 3 in Jesus' name. Amen. He cried also in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And, behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, and one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. They went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was. 
to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn, inkhorn by his side. Brother Jeremy, could you uh, also read verse 4, please? Yes. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that be done, excuse me, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Amen. Set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. As we've been discussing the, over the last uh, several podcasts, we've been exploring the vision uh, that was given to Ezekiel, as we see in the first verse of the eighth chapter. Uh, it was in the sixth year of the sixth month of the fifth day, and we discussed that and the significance of it. Ezekiel had had a vision prior to that uh, a little over a year and a month before where in chapter 1, verse 4, he saw the Lord coming out of the north, uh, bringing with him the entirety of the heavenly hosts and the chariots of God, the very throne of God, uh, piercing into the material world, not seen since the days of Moses at Mount Sinai. And it had been approximately a year after that vision and the calling of Ezekiel that we come to the eighth chapter, as we've been discussing where they've been there now for six years, six years since the captivity, which occurred under Jeconiah after the death of Jehoiakim, who was made king after the great revival of King Josiah, as we've we've talked about in previous podcasts, which we encourage you to go back and listen to. And so they've been split, the nation, that is Judah, those remaining in Jerusalem and in the city proper and, and in what was left of Israel by that po- point, uh, were were those that had fully and totally corrupted themselves and the house of God. And that's what Ezekiel is about to see. But an unusual thing had happened that we've been discussing is that God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come down after the death of Jeho- Jehoiakim, and they had installed Jeconiah as king. I believe he only reigned about three months. But after that three-month period or so, they came and they, they took captive thousands Ten, about 10,000 or so of the uh, of Israel, of Judah. And so uh, for all intents and purposes on the outside looking in, it would seem as if the judgment had come upon those who were destined for captivity in Babylon. But as we've explored in previous podcasts, that wasn't the case. In Jeremiah chapter 24, when they were seeking to understand why these things were happening and just trying to make sense out of, out of what, what this could all mean, False prophets had risen up and were beginning to prophesy that that really the action of the uh, Babylonians was, was only a temporary thing and that everything was about to be restored. And within a two-year period, they were looking for everything to come back, according to the false prophets. Well, that word didn't come to pass. And so now when we picked up the eighth chapter, they'd actually been in Babylon for six long years. and And it was beginning to dawn on many of them that it was quite possible they weren't going to be let go anytime soon. But Jeremiah had that vision in Jeremiah 24. We encourage you to go read it or at least go back and listen to the podcast 
where God showed him the, the actual door of the temple and before the temple, which, as we've described in past podcasts, is the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Whenever you see the temple of the Lord, it's not just talking about the uh, the big architectural uh, compound uh, that surra- surrounds the different chambers and different hallways and so forth and so on. Whenever you see the phrase, the temple of the Lord, it's referring specifically to the two holiest compartments. That's called the temple of the Lord. And the reason that it's called the temple of the Lord, that is the holy of holies and the holy place, is because that is where the glory of God receded to, as we've discussed in the past, when Solomon dedicated the temple some 300 years or so before. And you can read that in First Kings chapter 8. It is said when the temple was dedicated that the house was filled with the cloud and the glory of the Lord was present so that even the priest couldn't stand up to minister. Now, when that presence and that glory receded from the general uh, area of, of the temple complex itself, it went into the Holy of Holies and there it abode for a little over three centuries. It continued there. It would it would manifest, that is his glory, in a bright, illuminating light, which the rabbis call the Shekinah glory of God. They say that's the light that was present uh, at the beginning, the Holy Spirit, really, the, the Godhead uh, himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that light. And when that light moved into the first day of creation or recreation, as we've we've discussed in the past, that is God's glory. And so a measure of that glory was given in the days of Solomon at the dedication of the temple, and it abode there for centuries. And as long as the glory was there, the nation, Jerusalem, and the temple could not be destroyed. But subsequently, over years and years of of apostasy and wickedness of all sorts, the nation itself began to decline. God sent his prophets early warning them, even at the first hint of of the kind of corruption that was setting in, uh, which would so pervade the nation as to corrupt every single level of any administrative, any educational, any spiritual, um, you know, foundation of the nation, culminating in uh, in the captivity. And so when we got to chapter eight, what we began to notice was that when Ezekiel begins to have this vision, it's it's approximately only four and a half years to go. Four and a half years from the ultimate wrath of God being poured out upon the nation. You know, when people talk about God, they they uh, many times they don't understand, uh, you know, the way that he acted. And, and, you know, so he's portrayed as this really mean ogre kind of a God, you know, looking for... For them to mess up at any given moment so he can squash them like a bug well that's not the case at all that's a distortion in how he he's uh portrayed the truth of the matter is is that he was dealing with this people that is judah precisely because unlike the pagan and heathen nations around them they had the oracles of god they had the torah they had uh the prophets they had the blessing of god they had the covenant of god And so when they sinned, it wasn't just sinning the sins of the flesh, which is common to all men. They were sinning with the full knowledge of what they were doing. 
And with each subsequent generation, the convicting power of the Spirit or its influence upon the hearts of the people, the priesthood, and the, and the ruling uh, royal class of the nation, it began to diminish so that no longer, even when you would send a prophet like Isaiah or Habakkuk or Jeremiah, no longer could it reach the heart. The hearts had become so calloused and, and uh, you know, like a callous over the heart, over the mind. All it, all it ever did whenever God would send his prophets is make them angry. They didn't want to hear it. It reached the point in the days of Isaiah where they, they began to, to turn their hearts and want and desire false prophets. And uh, let's take a look at that, Brother Jeremy, so we can, we, can, we can verify that in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 30. Do you remember where that scripture is, brothers? Is it Isaiah 30 where they said, prophesy unto us smooth things? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 30. Let's, let's, let's turn over there. And, and and look at what God has the prophet Isaiah do. And, and then we will read it from verse chapter 30, verse 9 through through 13. 13. Okay. Sorry I didn't give you that, that scripture. <laughs> it just came into oh, no, my no. mind. All right. That's good. That's good. All right. That this is a rebellious people. No, lying children. Eight, but... I'm sorry, start verse with eight. verse eight because yeah, because God had him do something really interesting here. Now this is this is probably about 150 years before they're about to be destroyed, but this is what he has Isaiah write. And he has him record it in a book, which is very interesting. And I hope we can cover some of those things in the days ahead. But but go ahead and read that now from eight through thirteen, please. Yes. Now go write it before them in a table. And noted in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, would say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceit. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because ye despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and, and stay thereon, therefore this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall swelling out in a high wall whose breaking cometh suddenly at an instant. Wow, that's incredible. So here we see in the days of Isaiah uh, what is actually the case that's already being laid before them. Um, you know, about a hundred or so plus years just before all that we've been talking about is going to happen. And, and what he says there is extraordinary. Because even though they would have revival, like under Hezekiah, under Josiah, uh, the, the iniquity was so deep. And this is a mystery in many ways. Mm -hmm. You remember in the book of Malachi, I'm about, what I'm about to say will make sense to you, uh, after I describe this. In the book of Malachi, when God came, and this was, 
this is after they return from the captivity, all that kind of stuff, just before Jesus, about 400 years before the Lord. In the book of Malachi, when they rebuilt the temple, and the second temple is now uh, in full swing, they already began to corrupt themselves even then. And in the book of Malachi, about 400 years before John the Baptist and Jesus, God begins to lay out a case before the priesthood and how they were treating their wives and, you know, on and on and on. But one of the things that he said was that I have put you together, that is the priestly class, with the women that you are married to specifically so that you could raise up a godly seed, a generation to generation to generation that would be given to the things of God. But there is something very interesting there, and we won't belabor the point, but we could discuss it at length. It is what is generated at the moment of conception. It mm. appears to remain within, and we know this from the from from the Torah itself, which teaches us when God said, uh, "I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the fourth generation of those who who despise His law, who despise His ways." There is there is a something that occurs at the moment of conception that. <laughs> that if it is not uh, generated uh, from a people, especially God's people, of a holy nature, that is, a people that live right and serve the Lord, uh, then then what is what appears to, uh, to to happen to the generations is they become uh, uh, infiltrated uh, with a level of uh, or a propensity as they will grow from generation to generation to move toward the things of darkness precisely because of their forefathers before them. And so when 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 Isaiah here is is speaking, he identifies them in verse 9 as a rebellious people. He calls them lying children. He calls them children that will not hear the law of the Lord. This is a product of generational corruption to the point now that Isaiah goes on to say that the people themselves, and these are God's people now, this is what blows my mind, is they actually tell their preachers and their prophets what to preach. And it tells them, don't, don't, don't preach right things to us. Speak to us smooth things, verse 10. Prophesy deceit. That's incredible. Like, in other words, lie to me. I don't want to hear this 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 word that might put parameters around my life. That's where they already were 150 plus or so years before their absolute destruction. They were they were like this. And and then then what they begin to do is tell the priests in verse 11, "Get out of the way. You turn aside out of the path and cause the holy one of Israel to cease from before us." That's incredible. You know, doesn't that sound like the Apostle Paul who told Timothy that in the last days um, that that men would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, right? If he's talking about the church, that they would give themselves over uh, to teachers having itching ears. They want to hear particular kinds of messages, anything but the true word of God. And then God goes on to say something really interesting in verse 12 where he says, because of this, says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and you trust in oppression and perverseness, 
and and that's where you camp out. That's where you stay there on this iniquity. This is incredible now. This iniquity. And the iniquity that he's talking about is the iniquity of one, corrupting their, their children. Two, producing this over generations. Three, uh, creating prophets and teachers uh, by imposing their will because of their compromised lifestyle that literally distort what should be the pure and holy word of God. And, and they, they tailored it to their own needs so that they could literally sit in the presence of these so-called prophets and seers, which were the creation of their own desires, and not be able to hear the word of God. God calls that an iniquity. And that the iniquity that they produced would cause a breach that is, you know, the protective wall around them would be opened up. A high wall whose breaking, he says, will come suddenly and at an instant when you least expect it. And indeed, it did happen a hundred or so years later. So, so even though we had a move of God under the days of Hezekiah, Hezekiah produced a son by the name of Manasseh. And when, when Manasseh was the king, he was so intense. Remember, his father instituted an incredible revival. By the time Hezekiah became the king, uh, the house of God was in such disrepair, if you remember. And what Hezekiah moved to do, the first thing that he did was he, he repaired the doors uh, to the temple of God, to, to the actual complex of God. It had fallen in such disrepair and, and neglect, and no doubt, uh, <laughs> you know, there's no intensity and, and no uh, true men of God um, and, and uh, you know, preaching the word of God. And then you don't have people who want to hear it. And this is who they listen to. The actual upkeep of the temple of God began to be in disrepair. And when Hezekiah took over, he was moved by the spirit of God to reinstitute uh, proper seeking of God and proper worship of God. And it led to, in many of the rabbinic scholars I've studied behind, say the greatest revival that Israel had ever seen. And so, so out of Hezekiah would come Manasseh, which is incredible. And you'll see why in a second, because Manasseh is tied to what happened to Judah. And we were talking about from generation to generation, so that even if we experience a measure of what appears to be a revival of some sort, uh, the the damage that was done in previous generations by leadership and and uh, and and the fathers before was so great that even if they outwardly, uh, because of leadership, would respond and do what the righteous leader wanted them to do, the truth of the matter is it was flowing through the very spiritual you know, quality or lack thereof of the generations before was still residing within them. And so all it would take when the generation would, would, uh, would begin to flourish several generations later is, is a corruption to, to flip the switch that would engender a propensity to move in a direction in full flight and full flourishing that would ultimately bring the wrath of God upon that generation. <laughs> so that's what we're seeing here. Now I want you to see something because when Manasseh became uh, the king uh, following his father Hezekiah, what he did was he began to uh, 
completely reverse everything that his father Hezekiah had done to such an extent that he literally filled every street corner and every high place in Judah uh, with with the with the most perverse and incredible uh, you know idolatry that they had ever seen. I mean, it was bad before, but not to this extent. As a matter of fact, Manasseh was the worst king they ever had. And he's in yeah. the line of King, right? He's in the line of King David. He you also, said, uh, <laughs> go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, Manasseh, and I think you mentioned it the other day, he did rule for over 50 years. I think about 53, 53 to 55 mm -hmm. years. I know that, that he ruled and he was 55, the worst right. king. 55, yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, look, look, look at the longevity of his kingdom of how much damage it did. It's, it's, it's amazing. Just wanted to say it that. is amazing. It is amazing, and 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 that's what we're trying to express here. Understand. I started out saying everybody thinks God's a mean God, right? He just was waiting up there for you to mess up so he can squash you like a bug. The truth of the matter is, he waited centuries before mm -hmm. he acted, like we see in in Ezekiel chapter eight. And so, not only did he return, that is Manasseh, the 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 to what he called the glory of idolatry. Literally, I mean that's that's what he embraced and and yeah. he rejected the glory of god and, and on every hill every street corner by the time you get to jeremiah he's talking about how the dads send the sons out to gather the wood and the mothers are in the kitchen baking cakes to the queen of heaven i mean they were wow. <laughs> they were so messed wow. up man that that he not only did the earthly uh idolatry but he also uh, instituted uh, what they call astral worship, which is a return to the worship of the planetary body, so that it was so thoroughly corrupt. It not only was in, in the natural realm of, of the earth, but it transcended that, and he directed their attention up into the very heavens themselves. That's why when we got to those 25 guys we talked about yesterday, they're worshiping the sun, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a second. But see, it had gotten so bad uh, that Jeremiah said, because remember, Jeremiah was the prophet that witnessed the destruction, which is what we're talking about. He referenced Manasseh. Uh, could, I think it's in Jeremiah 14. No, no, it's uh, 15, brother. Turn over to 15. I think that's where it is. Jeremiah 15. This is connected to what Ezekiel's seeing now. Because when God acts, it's over time. It's not a matter of you know, he gets mad and then he, he, he does what he does. It is, it is an incredible act of, of grace and patience on God's mm -hmm. part uh, with his people. When you consider the history that we're talking about here, hundreds of years of this type of behavior before he finally right. said enough is enough. I think it's verse three and four. Could you read that, Brother Jeremy? In talking... Uh, to them and the captivity that was coming and the ultimate destruction, he lays the blame right at the foot of Manasseh. Could you read that in 15, verse 3 and 4? Yes. And I will appoint over them four kinds, saith the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to tear, the fowls of the heaven, and the beast of the earth, to devour and destroy. And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. Incredible, right? 
Mm. I mean, this is he, he's taking the origin of this, the rise of the Antichrist foreshadow uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the rise of the the the, the foreshadow of the, of the global system that we're beginning to see come together in our time right now. He's connecting that to sins of a king and a nation that were at least, what are we looking at here? Uh, at least, you know, 50 years before. <laughs> so uh, it was so egregious. And notice how he points out that he was the son of Hezekiah the king, right? Right. It it it, it really doesn't make sense, does it? That you're, you would have such a godly father as Hezekiah, you would be his son, and you would totally reject that. Reminds me a lot of the 60s, by the way, in America. Yeah, you're right. Because <laughs> the children of, 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 of the greatest generation that came out of World War II, they, they, they rose up and rejected their fathers and the churches and the word of God that was given to them and, and, and completely rebelled. That's why we're in the mess we're in today. It goes from generation to generation. Go ahead, brother. We, we saw the same thing, too, to ha happen to the generation that started after the death of Joshua. In the book of Judges, mm. it was a generation that arose that knew not the God of their fathers, right? Incredible, and right? They were they were evil. They fell into deep, deep idolatry uh, with the other nations. Uh, excuse me, they, uh, with with those the people that were mixed up with them, and 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 God would raise up a deliverer, right? A judge, and then they would go back. Yes. So uh, back. you know, and we see you the have same. To ask Go ahead, Brother Mark. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought, Brother. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say um, we see the same thing happening today, right? Um, you know, because that, that that's very that's very um, tremendous what you were quoting, how the involvement of the parents and their children involved in this deep pagan worship, right? And yeah. and how, how they were corrupting even the innocence of our kids, right? Which is going yeah. on right now today in this hour. We have a generation that does not know God or the God of our fathers. So that, that's what I wanted to uh Yeah, and, and what we see now that. is we see the same sin being played out on a global scale, especially across the West and the industrialized nations of the world. There is a move uh, that is in full flight. It's not coming. It's not beginning. It's here, especially in this country which generates and infects, it generates uh, sin at a level uh, probably not seen since the days of Babylon. And it has been used as a conduit to, to fill the world, uh, as the Bible des describes the whore of Babylon, uh, with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She's a consumer nation in the book of Revelation, and she corrupts the nations of the world with her delicacies. She's a purveyor of all sorts of evil and satanic thought, and she has seduced the world. This is the full expression in the book of Revelation of the foreshadow of what we see in these historical narratives that we're talking about. That's the reason that we're exploring these things, because the parallels are striking. And what you said about the giving of the children over to that, all you got to do is look at the popular you know, uh, culture of the day, especially emanating from Hollywood and the entertainment industry, the music industry, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, they, they are being used to put forth ideas both in film, in song, and in the public discourse, as well as using their own children as examples. 
you know, where they're raising them now and they, they're, they're, you know, flat out saying we don't call them boys or girls and we go down the list of all the right. stupid stuff that they do. But, but rather than just simply looking at what they do, we need to understand it from the perspective of why they're doing what they're doing and what's moving them to do it. Because the connective tissue is the rebellion within the house of God. That's what's allowing it to happen. Understand, Manessa was such an incredibly wicked person that he killed his grandfather. He sawed him in half. You know who his grandfather was? His grandfather was the was the prophet Isaiah. Wow. He killed he killed Isaiah. He sawed him in half. That unleashed uh, a reverberation through the spirit realm. Because remember, Isaiah was the one who saw the Messiah. You know, Isaiah saw probably visions of God greater than any prophet. He saw a revelation of Jesus Christ greater than any prophet has ever seen uh, prior to John, John the Apostle. And, and with the exception of maybe Daniel, but he, Daniel didn't even see Jesus the way Isaiah did. So the level of evil that was flowing through Manasseh, he actually slaughtered his own grandfather, sawing him in half. And this shedding of blood, this uh, you know kind of thing, and I don't want to get graphic here, too graphic here. I just want to under, I just want us to understand what is happening in our time, and what we can learn from what happened in their time. Because there are principles here. There are, uh, there are both godly principles and there are occultic satanic principles. And when you, when you apply from the perspective of, of God and his word, it generates a force of light. Remember what Jesus said. He said, if, if the light be in you uh, is darkness, how great is the darkness? What was he talking about? How can light be darkness? He's referring to the devil himself. He was Lucifer, right? He was called the light bearer. So the light he's referring to there being darkness, he's referring to the devil inhabiting through influence and the energy that's imposed upon a soul that's compromised. This is why it's vital for you uh, out there to walk in the things of God, to guard and protect your mind and your spirit and your eyes. Because if you don't, an energy and a breach, like Isaiah revealed, a breach occurs, and you will become impacted by it. It'll attach itself to you. And the light that would be in you would become darkness. And Jesus warned, because when he went on from there during the Sermon of the Mount, he said, understand from out of the heart proceeds all these bad things, right? Whether they be adulteries or fornications or evil thoughts, and he goes down the list. So it is, it is paramount that we understand what's happening to the culture at large and understand that the connection between the unleashing and the onslaught of darkness across the land, the, the, the blame of it falls right at the doorstep of those who were supposed to be the caretakers of the gospel and of the word of God throughout the generations. Whenever you see evil beginning to rise and manifest itself as we see it in our time, understand it's not because, although there are a whole bunch of Satanists and witches out there doing their thing, it's 
it's because of the compromise at very high levels, at institutional levels is what we're talking about. It is the institutional level that was pointed out to Ezekiel in these abominations we've been looking at. The first thing he sees is the seed of the image of jealousy within the temple compound itself and the image itself placed at the north gate right by the brazen altar. That's institutional demonic corruption hidden from public view. It's the first thing that God showed Ezekiel. Its origins go all the way back to Manasseh, as we just read from the prophet Jeremiah in 15, chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. And it pervaded through the, the subsequent, you know, 12, 13, 14 decades that would, that would come from that point on. And it finally reared its full blossoming in this generation, in the sixth year, as, as we've been reading in Ezekiel chapter 8. It's the institutional corruption that he was first shown. And then he was shown how pervasive institutional corruption had become in that it, bleeded, it bled down and filtered down amongst the general congregation and population. That's why the second vision we saw, those of you go back and listen in chapter 8, is the vision of the hidden idolatry and the worship of everything that you can possibly imagine that's perverse and dark amongst the elders it was an institutional corruption first and then it became a national corruption the two are connected understand what corrupts a nation is the corrupt priesthood it's an energy that's generated it's 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 a reverberation that begins to to impact those amongst the congregations who are weak in mind in spirit or compromised in any way when a generation reaches this point where God himself is going to judge it, you're witnessing a, 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 uh, <clears throat> something that has been coming for, for decades. It didn't happen overnight. And just because you can't see it or understand why it is, you know, what, you know what's really bad about today in, in, in the public church is that they all point their finger at the world. They all blame the devil's children. They all, you know, come down hard on them and say, do you see, look what they do, and they do this, and they do that. But what they fail to understand is that the reason that they are allowed to, to do what they do is because you, whoever, wherever the shoe fits, have abrogated your position as being that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that city set on a hill that was meant to affect the darkness with the level of light that you allow to flow through your being. So it's easier to point the finger, but what we learn from biblical history is that when a society becomes corrupt to this level, it is because of institutional perversion and institutional co corruption that has opened itself up to this level of walking away from light and yet persisting in, in still representing on a pseudo basis what should be a holy priesthood of God. That's what Ezekiel was allowed to see. <laughs> so the ancients uh, were corrupt. The women then in the outer court were corrupt as we talked about. We talked about their weeping for Tammuz. Go back and listen to all those programs. You'll learn a lot. But the weeping of Tammuz, literally, as we talked about in previous podcasts, what they were doing was they, were, they had entered into an ancient pagan rite. Now, remember what we talked about yesterday, 
it wasn't just that Ezekiel were seeing actual events that were happening. He was actually seeing how it was represented within the spirit world. That's what Brother Fernando brought out yesterday uh, so well. And when he, when he referenced Judas and he referenced Peter, he referenced Peter in the sense that when he said to the Lord, you can't go to Jerusalem and die, Jesus didn't address Peter the man. He addressed the satanic spirit that was influencing his mind that caused him to say the very thing that he said to the Lord. He called him Satan and said, get behind me, for you do not savor the things which be of God, but the things which be of man. That, that is the principle we're talking about here. Now, we know that the Lord prayed for Peter and he didn't, he became the great apostle Peter. So we're not laying a heavy trip on him. We're just talking about how incredibly, uh, you know, intense it is and how you must walk close to God or you can easily find yourself, uh, you know, not before long being used as, as a tool uh, for destruction rather than a tool for life. So these women were weeping. And they were crying out for Tammuz. And as we talked about, Tammuz is the offspring of Nimrod and Semiramis. So these are ancient spirits we're dealing here with. They go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And Tammuz was their offspring. And in essence, he's a foreshadow of the son of the devil. Nimrod was a type of Satan. Semiramis, in many ways, is a type of the whore of Babylon. And Tammuz was the offspring. And, 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 and by them weeping for him, whether they realized it or not, what God was showing Ezekiel was they were generating a call in the spirit realm, opening themselves up for it, that was drawing the foreshadow of the Antichrist toward themselves. The very sins of the people of God created a breach, like Isaiah said, that opened up the possibility for the rise of a Nebuchadnezzar. For the rise of a Babylonian empire, the strength of the rebellion could only be realized through the compromised within God's own house. The devil could never accomplish it with the pagan nations. This is why it's so vital that you don't, uh, you know, compromise in the things of the world. We're not trying to preach a clothesline religion. We're trying to go a little bit deeper, a lot deeper, really, and reveal the energy that is generated from a child of God or, or a collective gathering of believers, if it's a compromised gathering, it's literally sending forth, like James said, bitter and sweet water at the same time. And it corrupts. It brings chaos. And when, when you have enough of that going on, you have the rise of a Nebuchadnezzar in a global empire. That was what was happening. And so then he came to the 25, right? We talked about them between the porch and the altar. Let's look at that real quick in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16, and then we'll get into the to the ninth chapter. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll read verse 16, right, Brother Marty? Yes, sir. Okay. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. Now, why this is so profoundly sophic, as they say, uh, is because he connects the two. 
the weeping for Tammuz, and then these 25. And yesterday, as we talked about, these 25 were meant to be a, a reflection of the high priest in heaven and the 24 elders around the throne room of God. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 4, where it talks about the 24 elders. Well, there's 24 men here, and the 25th man is the high priest. And, and so the corruption was so thorough. While the women are, in essence, calling forth the spirit of Antichrist of their day, the 25, which were the chief fathers of the entire priesthood, there's the high priest and 24 specific chief fathers, as we read about yesterday in, in, in Chronicles, when David apportioned out uh, the, the actual uh, process by which God, God's house would be maintained. He broke it up into 24 different family tribes or uh, 24 different courses within the tribe of Levi, different offshoots of, of, of the Levitical family under the line of Ithamar and, uh, and, and uh, Eleazar, the two brothers of Nadab and Abihu who died in the wilderness for offering strange fire. So out of them came 16 from Eleazar and eight from Ithamar, making a total of 24 heads over the Levitical clan, and they would come up to the house of Jerusalem, and they would serve in two-week increments, uh, making a total of, of 24, covering the entirety of a year. And so what he's allowed to see here is once they reach this point, the women are calling out for, for the birth of something, Tammuz, a foreshadow, an ancient spirit that will, that will produce or or materialize into what would become a foreshadow of the Antichrist in the form of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. But so if the women are weeping for the spirit of Antichrist, then what we see is the final nail in the coffin. Because when you have the entirety of, of the religious ruling class represented by the 24 elders who represent the 24 elders around the throne of God, only they're on the earth. They have made a conscious decision in the spirit led by the high priest on the earth to turn their back on God. And when they reach for the sun in the east, they are reaching for an ancient spirit that goes all the way back past Egypt. In Egypt, he was known as Ra, but it's really the same. It goes all the way back to, to the original, Nimrod. The sun represented uh, Satan himself. And they were saying, by their ultimate act of rebellion, we turn our back on you and embrace him. And when that happened, which is why Ezekiel was allowed to see it, God comes. Not He doesn't send an angel. He didn't send Michael or Gabriel or any other creature that he has made that is subjected to his will. He came himself. The entirety of the throne room of God hastened to the earth because something was about to happen. Now notice where they position themselves. They position themselves between the porch and the altar. The porch is the place of instruction. That's where the priesthood would gather and they would talk about the word of God. The fact that they turned their back on the temple or the door of the temple was their way of saying we're rejecting God's ways and we're embracing the ways of the sun, a figurehead of the devil himself, the sun itself. When the Bible specifically talks about them facing the east, 
Understand that the temple complex on Mount Moriah was laid out in such a way that when the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west, it is in the west where God's uh, holy temple is, the holy of holies and the holy place. So every day by the sun rising just in the natural world and having to, to move toward the west where the holy of holies is, it is in, in essence subjugating itself to the, to the Holy One who made it. So by the, by the priests turning their back on the West and facing the East, they were creating the ultimate of, of blasphemies, for they were now turning their back on the glory of God and embracing a different light, a light that exists in time and space and is finite and had a moment of creation just like the devil. So they turn their back on the place uh, of the instruction of God, and they want, and they're literally, spiritually speaking now, because that's what I, I Ezekiel is seeing, calling out for different instruction. They turn their back on the altar, between the porch and the altar. In essence, they're turning their back on a foreshadow or a type of Calvary. And they turn their back on the door of the temple, which finally and ultimately and completely is a rejection of the authority of God in their lives. They were, <laughs> this was, whether they realized it or not, like Brother Fernando said, or whether they perceived it or not, what they were doing was being seen in the spirit realm. And that is why Ezekiel was shown these things in the spirit. As we talked about, when God took him from Babylon and brought him in the visions of God, Ezekiel 8.3, to Jerusalem, it was removing his soul and spirit. He grabbed him by a lock of his head, he said, took him out of his body and carried him in the wind of the spirit between the heaven and the earth so that we would know and understand by this that the, that what was taking place and the energy that's being generated and rippling across the landscape of multiple dimensions reaching all the way up to heaven itself could only be perceived in its fullness in the spirit realm. It could not be understood because much of what's being seen uh, by Ezekiel, uh, uh, all of it really, is not seen by the general public. These are places within the confines of the institutional house of God that were hidden from the public arena. And that's why he showed it to him the way that he did. And, and he goes on to talk about the result of it is already generating violence. Can you read verse 17, Brother Jeremy? Yes. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Now, if you want to get into some incredible studies, uh, I will not speak these things because they are not meant for general public consumption. But go study what they were actually doing, because uh, Brother Jeremy mentioned it the other day in Numbers chapter 25, I believe it is. This is the sin of Baal Peor. This is what they were actually engaged in. Now, for those of you that are not faint of heart, you go study what the sin of Baal Peor is and the worship of Baal Peor is. And that is what these men were doing. It is the ultimate desecration of the house of God. And, and and God points out to to the prophet 
He says, the result of this, we've been talking about what is generated in the spirit taking form in the natural. He says, by their behavior, they have filled the land with violence. They have. They have filled it with violence. And then, so so deeply overtaken and perverted have they become. Understand, this is not a gradual, this is not an instantaneous uh, arriving at this place. This is a full corruption of spirit, soul, and body that will happen. That is why playing with sin is so dangerous. That is why we are warned time and time again to be careful what we do, what we see, because it will, it will get a hold of you, and you will become something that you never thought you would ever be. That is what happened to these men. God says it this way. They fill the land with violence. And then they come back to my house to provoke me. This was an act of the will. But, but by this time, they're completely controlled by satanic power. And the choices they're making are completely controlled by him. This is why the wrath of God was about to fall on the nation. It wasn't some little, you know... <laughs> You know, some just whatever you want to categorize it as some little sins of the flesh, man. Uh-uh. We now have the case laid out before us. And now God brings us to chapter 9. And he begins to proclaim the wrath is coming. Can you read that in verse 1? What does he do, Brother Jeremy? He cried also in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Can you read verse 2? And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth towards the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, and one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side, and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. We see two things taking place here. Having exhausted, we haven't exhausted looking at these abominations, but but for our purposes in our podcast, we've 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 covered enough, and and we've seen. This is what it's leading to. It's leading to, to God, ultimately having to stop this. He had to stop it. <laughs> it couldn't it couldn't continue you know there comes a finite period for any nation and for any compromised people this is a collective expression remember though we have god's people in captivity in babylon they're safe and so what they're withdrawing and separation from here which would on the surface have appeared to have been a bad thing, was actually God's mercy protecting them for what was about to come. They weren't all perfect, all the people that went into captivity, but it was a sovereign act of the will of the Creator, for He knows all hearts. What was left over only took a matter of six years to reach this point now. And that's what Jeremiah uh, prophesied, and that's what Ezekiel is being allowed to see. So now He's moving. You begin the process 
Now, remember, we're four and a half years away from the ultimate destruction of, of, of the temple of Judah, of the priesthood, of the city itself being burnt to the ground, of men, women, and children being absolutely slaughtered for, for the sin they allowed amongst them. But what is about to be revealed is, is that very act of the outpouring of the wrath of God. It occurred first in the spirit world before it would be manifest in the material world four and a half years later. This is an incredibly deep subject. I just throw that thought out there for you to consider as we go on in the chapter. We cannot exhaust it in a podcast forum, but I encourage you to do your own studies in these things. Now listen to what he says in verse 1. After showing him all this, in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, he cried with a loud voice. And then remember that. He cries with a loud voice and he causes, and, and he says, saying, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. Even every man with a destroying weapon in his hand. So the first thing he does is he calls to them that have charge over the city. So this is really interesting because what he's actually doing is, and what we need to understand is that, is that there are unseen beings, creatures, made by God, dispatched to protect territory that he claims for himself, in this case, Judah, Jerusalem, and the land of Israel. But here he specifically identifies the city of Jerusalem and he calls forth those who are uh, are responsible for the city. And, and then he has them come and position themselves by the brazen altar in verse 2. He says they went in and stood by the brazen altar, the latter part of verse 2. Number one, he positions them at the brazen altar because what he was about to do and what he was doing symbolically by putting them by the brazen altar, which is a type of the cross, which is where they would bring the lambs and offer burnt offerings to God and receive forgiveness for their sins. What he was actually saying by positioning them by the brazen altar was, that's it. Time's up. <laughs> there will be no sacrifice for this. You cross the line, it's over. Judgment is inevitable now. But I want to ask you this, because this is very interesting. We need to understand it from this perspective when he said, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. I asked the question in, in my own studies over the years when I first used to read these things. And I said, well, well, they didn't do a very good job if they were responsible for protecting Jerusalem. I mean, the whole city is given to, to violence and perversion, right? I mean, the whole priesthood is great. What have you been doing if you supposedly are, you know, charged angelic beings to protect Jerusalem? Well, that's not what they were protecting. What did they have charge over? What was it they had been guarding all those centuries? Well, we've already talked about it. It's in verse 3. Would you read verse 3, Brother Jeremy? And the glory of the, God, of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn 
by his side. What these angels were in charge of guarding, that had charge over the city, was the glory of God we've been talking about for three days. The glory of God that appeared in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. The, the glory of God that had receded itself into the Holy of Holies. They were charged with protecting the glory. What everyone did was inconsequential. If they wanted to act the way they did, and they did, that's up to them. The consequences are, were, were about to happen in a few years, about four years from this point on. But these angels were specifically charged with protecting the glory. Now, let me tell you something. This gives a little more insight into what the book of Hebrews reveals to us about his ministering spirits, flames of fire. It says that they were they are sent forth to minister unto what or unto who? Unto the heirs of salvation. In essence, the glory that that now is is within the hearts of every child of God across the planet right now. It used to be located simply for lack of a better way to say it, in the Holy of Holies. But it wasn't in the hearts of a church. It wasn't until Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, made it all the way to heaven, prayed the Father, and asked him to send the glory, that is the Holy Spirit, into the hearts of the church, that the, that the glory came and resided within the hearts of the people. And so, subsequently, he sends his angels to guard every single one, that has that glory inside of them. That is the glory of the Lord that resides within his church. Paul described it this way. It does not yet appear, uh, you know, uh, what we what we shall shall be. Uh, no, that's John, the Apostle John, but he says, but we do know when he shall appear, we shall be just like him. And, and then Paul goes on to talk about uh, uh, the, the things that we go through right now in this life, to paraphrase it, is not working world. Yeah, is not what worthy to be compared to what the glory the glory shall be revealed in us in us and when he talks about revealed it, it doesn't mean that it's going to be placed there it means it's already there it's just concealed as as it was in the holy of holies back in the day that we're talking about the glory is in you if you love the lord with all his heart and, and what we learn from this narrative, because God said, do you see what they do? Like we read the other day in verse 6, where he says that I should go far from my sanctuary, right? Yeah, this is why you need to be careful, utterly careful what you do. Because over time, he will remove his presence from you. And when he does that, there's really no hope. Because your conscience becomes seared. And, and it can't be healed. But we're not going to dwell on that. We want to dwell on the glory because here we see it that he sends uh, the six that have charge over the city. They were charged with protecting that glory. And there seems to be a connection between the angelic hosts that were protecting the glory and, and the priesthood itself, the 24 uh, chief of the fathers representing the 24 elders in heaven, the, the high priest, who's the 25th amongst them, the ancients of Israel representing the nation, they were meant to be a priestly and kingly class, remember? 
And so together, there seems to be a connection between heaven and earth. That's what Brother Fernando talked about yesterday in the prayer that the Lord taught his disciples to pray. He said, after this manner, pray our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in heaven, so on the earth. When the earth fails, that portion of its responsibility through the priesthood and the and at that time the single nation on the planet that had the oracles of God it was the end and the angels came what they were protecting was the glory and then check this out when he removed himself as we read in verse 3 once they came close the glory of the God of Israel in verse 3 goes up uh, to the threshold of the house he's now beginning his systematic removal from his house and and the glory itself is surrounded by the by the seraphim the cherubim and 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 those that had charge over the city and they're about to escort the glory as we go into these chapters in the next couple of days right out of that city all the way to the mount of olives and up into heaven itself the last time that progression took, what were you going to say? No, I was, I was thinking about the Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 50. It says, the mighty, the mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. It says, out uh, of Zion, the perfection of beauty hath God shined. That was the intent of the temple all along. It was that out of it, would the perfection of beauty would shine throughout the nation and throughout the world. And and that wasn't what was happening. That has ceased because the, the, the temple was a, a, a point of contact of God on earth with God, of God with, with his people on earth. But from what we're seeing is uh, it had also become another point of contact that was satanic in nature. Right, and it was manifesting yes. itself through the ministry, and therefore the whole land had, had, had waxed dark and, and gross. Right, it was in gross darkness. So, is it, the temple out of it was supposed to be manifested the perfection of beauty, the glory of the Lord. Right, the glory of the Lord. But but now it's not. Something else is emanating from uh, that that the temple into the earth. So the angels have to come and protect the glory of the Lord because the ministry ceased to do what it was there for placed to do, which wow. was to, to, to express the glory of God to the nation and to the whole world. Right. Yes. And, and then it yes. says, verse three, our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very temptuous round about him. He shall call, to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me, I sacrifice. I sacrifice, And that's what yeah. we're seeing. That, that's mm -hmm. what we're seeing uh, with the dispatching of these angelic hosts um, because the glory of the Lord, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? I'm lacking the word. Um, but it's being protected like you because it's supposed to be revered, but it's not being revered. Right? Yes. And so 
something else is emanating. And, and this is what the listener has to understand. This is how deep the sin that was within the confines of the temple where only the ministry was allowed, only the ministers of the Lord, the priesthood was allowed into, unseen from the outside world and the nation itself, this is where the contact point of the satanic will of the enemy was 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 manifest in itself. This is very deep what we're talking about here. And this is exactly <laughs> this is exactly what we're saying is taking place today because it is a prophecy of what's taking place today. If you have eyes to see. Yeah. Incredible what you just said. It is very deep. And like we said earlier, uh Lucifer couldn't do what he was doing. He couldn't do what he was doing with the Gentile nations. That's what you're talking about. You're talking about a full corruption of, of, of the priesthood. He had to corrupt them as he himself corrupted himself. There is something that Paul calls the mystery of iniquity. This is that mystery we're talking about. That is that is the opposition, the opposition that flows and has its origin generating uh, out of in the material world, which connects itself, like you so rightly said, to the world that cannot be seen. And it is there that content, you know, the contest is taking place. But the, but the connection uh, between those who know the truth and their surrendering to another will causes a, a a generating force to occur like a blast from a shotgun. It reverberates outward in all directions within the realm, not only of the material world, which is simply a reflection of the truth of what's taking place in the hidden unseen world. Now turn over to Second Thessalonians so we can see the pattern that is predicted. I'll, I'll throw this we, in while we go with while we go with it, I'll yeah. throw this in there as well. Um the Ark of the Covenant was that contact point of God's glory, you know, when he he, he would uh, uh the Shekinah glory that where the, the high priest would come in once a year and the glory of the Lord would come be, above the mercy seat between the cherubs. This image of jealousy that was erected became a contact point Yes. Powers of darkness. Very much so. Right. Well, and, you know, again, this is where we. This is again, you know, the image. It's. I'm glad you pointed that out because in our culture, are we not inundated with image? Yeah. And so, what you give yourself to becomes a contact point. Didn't David say, "I made a covenant with my eyes. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes." Didn't Job say? I made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I look upon a maid, right, with with bad thoughts and stuff? I mean, uh, this is the principle. What you said right there, brother, is so profound because now we take it and accelerate it into a level that the world has never seen, maybe not since the days before the flood. You go out into, <laughs> you know, go out and walk on the, go sit on a park bench somewhere and watch people walk by. With their iPhones, right? I mean, everybody's face is, is, is fixed on some sort of image. They don't even look up. 
So don't tell me we're not <laughs> we're not being influenced in this world. Oh, if you had eyes to see, I don't want to go down that road. All right, so listen. Uh, read to us verse three, would you, Brother Jeremy? Because this is what Paul predicted to the Thessalonians would happen in our time. We're seeing it right now. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Notice the process. It's the same process that Ezekiel witnessed. There had to be a falling away first. We read about it in Isaiah, right? Chapter 30, verse 8 through 13. When the people themselves, God described them as a rebellious house, children, you know, uh, of perversion and iniquity and, you know, who didn't want uh, the, the right things and, 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 the, and the good things of the Lord, they turned their back on it. And, and Paul is saying in the last day uh, that there will be a falling away first and that gives way to the man of sin. That's the Antichrist to be revealed, the son of perdition. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, what does he say in verse, wait, in verse 4, what is his quality? Look at his quality here. Who opposed and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he has God seated in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God? How does he show himself? through the ones that have allowed him to infiltrate their hearts. Whether they realize it or not, that's what's happening. That's what we've been talking about was being generated at this time. Who came forth out of this absolute corruption? Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire. It brought them forth into the earth, and it became the foreshadow of what the book of Revelation talks about. And the pattern is repeating itself on a global scale, not just a Middle Eastern Mediterranean global empire, but an entire planet now. Notice there has to be a falling away. Then comes a revealing. And then comes a desire to sit where? In the temple of God. This is why we were talking to you about, uh, you know, how bad it was what they did. Because they brought this or they expressed this in the temple of God. That's what Ezekiel saw. And that's what Paul is prophesying will happen. Well, we know from Paul's writings that we are the temple of God. We are. Now, in your, your study of prophecy, your eschatology, you know, the, the, you know, this temple that everybody's looking for to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, all that kind of stuff, it, it, it is going to happen. Because that's what it seems to appear. But take it deeper and understand what's happening here. Look where he wants to sit. Look where he wants to show himself through. It's not, it's not the pagan nations that he wants to do this to. He wants to do it in the temple of God. And Paul says he's going to do it. But there's something deeper here. It's connected to a falling away, a removing from established orthodoxy. It gives way. It's the breach that Isaiah talked about. It opens the hole in the wall. Uh, and then he goes on and says in verse 6 and 7, what does he say? And now you know what withholded that he might be revealed in his time. 
For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now let it will let until he be taken taken out of the way. Only he that well first he calls it the mystery of iniquity. That's what we were talking about that Ezekiel was 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 being shown. It's the mystery of iniquity. And it was work it's been working since the days before the flood, really. Since the days of the Garden of Eden. That mystery of iniquity. And and then he says, uh, you you now know, he says, he's telling them of the early church, you now know what is going to withhold this ultimate expression uh, 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 of Satan. He says, he who now lets or who, who restrains him uh, will continue to restrain him. He was talking to them back then until he's taken out of the way. That's what we saw with the 24 elders and that one in their midst, the 25th, the high priest, when they turned their back and faced the sun, they took him out of the way. It's it's that precise act that caused them that had charge over the city to come forth, Ezekiel 9.1, and by the brazen altar, no more grace, and then his glory begins to depart. He will now let until he's taken out of the way. By who? By those who fell away. Or who are falling away even now. now look at verse 9. Because this is what's happening. Can you read verse 9? Even him. Whose coming is after the working of Satan. With all power and signs. And lying wonders. So this is it. This is the working of Satan. This is what we've been talking about. And this is this is only now going to be repeated amongst the visible church. The church that is yet abiding, if you will, in Jerusalem. The church that claims it is free to do whatever it wants to do, basically. And at an institutional level, understand what's really going on behind closed doors. We've had hints of it just in the last couple of months as as many many preachers and leaders of major evangelical organizations have been being exposed for what they actually do behind the scenes. So don't think this isn't going on in our time. And when you look at what you see taking place across the, across the landscape of the country, the violence, the perversion, understand what God reveals. This can only happen within a culture that once claimed to have its at its foundations, Judeo-Christian values, when the priesthood itself, the institutional level itself, corrupts itself, filters all the way down into the hearts of, of, of the congregated and begins to, to allow a breach to take place within the realm of the spirit that brings forth the very spirit of darkness that's flooding the land. This is very serious stuff. Now, he goes on in chapter 9, verse 4, as we've read, and we'll pick it up from here tomorrow. Before before he, before he uh, does, and that is bring his wrath down, he has them do something. What does he have them do, Brother Jeremy, in verse 4? And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh, and that cry 
for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Can you read that last part again? Who does he mark? He marks those. Uh, mark he and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. So in verse one, he hears a loud voice. In verse four, he lets his angels go and mark those uh, before the wrath is about to be poured out. What you are witnessing there is a predicted is 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 actually a foreshadow of what's predicted in in the book of Revelation. Let's close with this in chapter seven. Can you turn over to chapter seven and remember what we just read? Yes. Can you read verse one through three, brother, and, and remember what we were what we just read? We have a loud voice in Ezekiel nine one. We have a, a the angels coming. We have, uh, before the wrath being poured out, we have the saints of God being marked. Let's read this in verse 1 through 3, Brother Jeremy. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So notice what we see. What happened in Ezekiel's day has its connection to what will be the ultimate global reality not too many days from now. This is just before the wrath of God is about to be poured out in the book of Revelation. We see the same thing happening. We see uh, angels descending. Uh, and we see, uh, it says in verse 2, I saw another angel ascending. And look where he's ascending from, right? The east. He has a seal of the living God, and what? He cries with a loud voice. That's the same thing that happened in Ezekiel's day. And then they go forth before the wrath is poured out to seal the 144,000. And then, as you continue reading, an innumerable host out of every nation, tribe, tongue, and kindred. That is what is laying ahead of us. We see the pattern in Ezekiel's day. We saw it repeated again in A.D. 70 after the rejection of Jesus Christ and he was carried up into heaven. The glory was received by the angels, right? Jesus left from the Mount of Olives. And then he sends the glory into his church. And after 2,000 years, the same thing will happen. There will be a falling away, an embracing of darkness. But a separation, like Brother Fernando talked about, is already underway. And they are being marked. It's all happening in our time. It's going to be replayed, but he's going to protect his people, those who really love him. He will retrieve the glory once again, the glory that's in his church. 
he's going to come for that glory again, and the wrath will be poured out. It's time for us to walk close to him. We encourage you not to be afraid, like Jesus said, but to understand the times we're living in and that the days are at hand. The question is, what side will you choose to be on? I know you love him just as we do. And there's really only one side, right? Like the old timers used to say, we've read the end of the book, man. We know what's happening. We know what's coming. And we know that Jesus is soon to return. God is separating his children right now. Let us pray that we will always be in that number. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. We thank God today for this study. Tremendous. God marking those that sighed and wept and cried. And uh, what a time that we can use after this podcast really to reflect some of the things that have been said and to analyze our lives in this hour. We pray that you've been blessed today, and we hope that you join us tomorrow as we continue to study uh, the Word of God. May God bless you. May God keep you. And as always, keep looking up.